If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We are going to be in the book of Jeremiah this morning. And usually we preach through books of the Bible. And uh, this fall, we're going to be in the book of Genesis. We are going to be in the life of Abraham. And we're calling the sermon series uh, Life in the Gap because if you think of it, Abraham really lived in the gap between the promises of God and the fulfillment of God. And so we're going to be in the book of Genesis this fall. But uh, most of you know, for most of July, I was in Chicago at a preaching workshop and I had to preach a bunch of sermons. And um, so it being summer, um, I'm preaching the sermons I preached in Chicago. I'm preaching here for you. And my first sermon that I preached in Chicago was assigned to me from the book of Jeremiah in chapter 15. And this chapter that I was assigned, at first I read it, I thought it was a cruel joke. It is all about judgment. So turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 15. We're going to be in the entire chapter. I recently uh, heard a stand-up comedian. He was being interviewed and he talked about one of the hardest things about his job is that he, when he's thinking about a joke or a bit or a skit, what he does is he figures out where the line is on that joke and he tries to get as close to the line as possible but never to cross the line. Because if you cross the line on a joke, if you do that, well, the audience can turn on you, right? A joke by its very nature makes us a little bit uncomfortable in order to pack a punch, but if you go too far, if you make the audience too uncomfortable, it's the fastest way to get heckled, to get canceled, maybe even to get slapped. Comedians in some sense, are a lot like preachers. If you think about it, lawyers, comedians, and preachers all do similar things. They all stand before people and use words in order to move people or persuade people. And just like the comedian, a preacher's job is to know the line and sometimes to not cross it. Because it's one thing to talk about the love of God. Oh, most audiences would be like, that's not really crossing the line. But what about the judgment of God? What about the exclusivity of God? What about God's judgment on unrepentant sin? Those are uncomfortable. Those are truths. Those are messages which, inside and outside of the church, seemingly cross the line. And just like the comedian, they too can get us canceled, heckled. Know the line, get close to the line, maybe dip your toe over the line for a moment, but never stay over the line for too long is a truism of Hollywood. But it's not a truism of the Bible. Because sometimes God calls his people and his ambassadors and his messengers 
to speak a word that he knows will cross the line, and God says, I want you to speak it anyways. And that's what we come to today in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 15. God calls Jeremiah to speak a word of judgment in which he knows will cross the line with his audience within the people of God and outside of the people of God. And God looks at Jeremiah and says, I want you to cross it anyways. And that's the big idea that I have for you this morning. We might, as a church, you might, as a Christian, be canceled, if we can call it that, for crossing the line. But I want to encourage you, and I want to encourage us as the church, that we ought to cross it anyways. That's the big idea today. You might get canceled for crossing the line, but let's cross it anyways. Jeremiah 15. I'm going to read all of it. And I want you to notice that this is divided up structurally between a dialogue between God and Jeremiah. Verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my heart would not turn towards this people. Send them out of my sight and let them go. And when they ask you, when they ask you, where shall we go? You shall say to them, thus says the Lord. Those who are for pestilence to pestilence. Those who are to the sword to the sword. Those who are for famine to famine. And those who are for captivity to captivity. I will appoint over them four kinds of destroyers, declares the Lord. The sword to kill, to kill the dogs to tear, and the birds of the air, and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. And I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth because of what Manasseh, the king of Hezekiah, king of Judah, did in Jerusalem. Who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem? Or who will grieve for you? Who will turn aside to ask about your welfare? You have rejected me, declares the Lord. You keep going backwards, so I have stretched out my hand against you and destroyed you. I am weary of relenting. I am a winnowing, I am winnowing them with a winnowing fork in the gates of of the land. I have bereaved them. I have destroyed my people. They did not turn from their ways. I have made their widows more in number than the sands of the sea. I have brought against the mothers of young men a destroyer at noonday. I have made anguish and terror fall upon them suddenly. So who bore seven has grown feeble. She has fainted away. Her son has her son went down while it was yet day. She has been shamed and disgraced, and the rest of them I will give to the sword before their enemies, declares the Lord. Woe is me, my mother that you bore me, a man of strife and contention to the whole land. I have not lent, nor have I borrowed, yet all of them cursed me. The Lord said, I have not set you free for their good. Have I not pleaded for you before the enemy uh, in the time of trouble and in the time of distress? Can one break iron, iron from the north and bronze? Your wealth and your treasures I will give as spoil without price and your sins throughout all the territory. And I will make you serve your enemy in the land that you do not know. For in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. O Lord, you know. Remember me and visit me and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. In your forbearance, take me not away. Know that for your sake I bear reproach. 
Your words were found and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and a delight in my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. I did not sit in the company of revelers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because of your hand was upon me, for you have filled me with indignation. Why is my pain unceasing, my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Will you be to me like a deceitful brook, like waters that fail? Therefore, thus saith the Lord, if you return, I will restore you, and you shall stand before me. If you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, you shall be as my mouth. They shall turn to you, but you shall not turn to them. And I will make you to be a people, a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail over you. For I am with you to save you and to deliver you, declares the Lord. I will deliver you out of the hand of the wicked and redeem you from the grasp of the ruthless. Intense. Our text is divided up in this dialogue between God and Jeremiah, and just to set the historic context, Jeremiah is a prophet in the southern kingdom, right before the southern kingdom is sacked by Babylon and taken off into captivity. Jeremiah had already seen what had happened to the northern kingdom when Assyria had done that, and Jeremiah prophesied some 40 years in the early days of of Josiah, when things were kind of good, all the way to when Babylon sacked Jerusalem. And Jeremiah is clear throughout this entire book that Judah, because of their sins, because of their idolatry, they are going to be judged. And the judgment is going to be Babylon. Babylon is God's means in order to accomplish his ends. Now, In many ways, we arrive in the book of Jeremiah and in this chapter, and there is an eerie similarity between what happened in the southern kingdom, or what is about to happen in the southern kingdom, than what happened in the northern kingdom. And so, we can easily, I think, break up this dialogue into three movements. God speaks, then Jeremiah speaks, And then God speaks again. And so the first message that God speaks, we can just call it the message that crosses the line. Verses 1 to 9 and then verses 11 to 14. Look there in verse 1. The the Lord speaks and and we learn that he's going to bring like an exodus-like moment on God's people. Only they're like Egypt in this scenario. God puts it so bluntly that as you like unpack all of the metaphors, which I'm not going to do, it gets more and more serious, more and more haunting, more and more like a horror show. Verse 2, let me read it. And when they ask you, where shall we go? You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, those who are for pestilence to pestilence, those who for the sword to the sword, those to famine to famine, captivity to captivity. God says, I will appoint over them four kinds of destroyers, declares the Lord. The sword to kill, the dogs to tear, and the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. And I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. I mean, this is apocalyptic, is it not? 
I mean, the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse show up. The grim reaper, we could maybe call. And it just goes and gets worse and worse and worse. In verse 8 and 9, there's this imagery of a, of a mother with seven children. The perfect family. Like the, the poster child for focus on the family. She's got it all. The dream life. And in light of this, she will have wished, she will have fainted and wished that she never had a family. That's how grim this is getting, has gotten. All because of their sin, God is clear. All because of their failure to repent. All because of their idolatry. All because of their leaders did nothing. Their prophets spoke lies. And then in verse 11 through 13, we find out the form of this judgment. Exile. Which is the worst form of judgment. Because it's a casting out from God's presence. Now, as bleak as this is, I I grew up on Care Bears. I got a lot of hugs growing up. I got a lot of trophies for last place. So I was reading this thinking, this, like, this can't mean what I think it means. This, th- th- there's got to be like a, a like, like some type of hyperbole from God. Like this is like a, a divine cautionary tale, and God can't mean what it does mean. And any hope of dis- thinking that maybe God's just using hyperbole, really, if you read chapter 14, you realize, no, no. This is what it looks like it is. In, in chapter 14, at the very end of chapter 14, Jeremiah prays to God in this amazing pastoral prayer. And you open up chapter 15, verse 1, and you wonder, is God going to answer Jeremiah like God answered Moses in Exodus 32 when Moses stood before God mediating God's wrath on Israel for their idolatry when God relented. You go, okay, is is Jeremiah going to function like Samuel in 1 Samuel 7 when, when Samuel did that same thing where he stood in the gap between God's people and their sins and God and he prayed and God relented from his wrath. And so you open up chapter 15 in light of this prayer wondering, is God going to do a Moses-like or a Samuel-like relenting. Verse 1, God says, even if Moses came back to life, even if Samuel was here, even if you were the, 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 the smartest or the brightest, the holiest or the most humble, if your prayer was the greatest pastoral prayer ever, I will not listen to it. That's why this message crosses the line. Verse 3, God has appointed this. Verse 4, God will make this happen. Verse 12, with the sort of horrors of a rhetorical punch, he asks the rhetorical question, can anyone smash the bronze, which is Babylon from the north? And the answer is no. Like Israel is dead to rights. God has given them up for exile. This section, I hope you sense, 
I hope you feel, is a message that I don't care what time in, in, in the history of the church a person lived in or what region of the world they live in, I think this is probably the message that crosses the line more than any other message. The message of God's judgment on sin. Even Jer- Jeremiah, as holy, as humble, as hardworking as he was as a preacher and prophet, Jeremiah could do nothing. No wonder Jeremiah speaks one word in response to this message that crosses the line. Look there, verse 10. Woe. He wishes he had never been born. It's a hard word, the message of judgment in light of sin and the promise of discipline for unrepentant sin. It really is one of the hardest messages to speak on. It is a message that we all feel when you're talking with maybe a non-Christian neighbor. And maybe you're still trying to figure out this whole church thing and you're like, This is playing into my stereotypes right here. I'm well aware of, and I think our church is well aware of, that this is a message that, at least emotionally, crosses the line. That's movement one, the message that crosses the line. But there's a second movement. And we can just call this that in light of God's call on his prophet, and then by application and extension, all of us, to cross the line, movement two is the human tendency to not want to cross it. And that's what we see with Jeremiah in verse 10, and then again in verses 15 and 18 when Jeremiah speaks to God. So verse 10. In verse 10 and then in verses 15 to 18, Jeremiah has three complaints that he levies against God. First, Verse 10, he basically says, everyone hates me. Everyone hates me. And it doesn't even make sense why everyone hates me because I didn't steal anything. I mean, if I took all the money we had in our church bank account and I went to Emerald Queens Casino and put it all on red and I lost and I came back to you and I said, well, the lot belongs to the Lord. Sorry, guys. Um, You would hate me, right? And you'd have good reason to hate me. Jeremiah has done none of that. He's done nothing but be faithful, and yet God's people, his family, his own people, hate him. Complaint one. Complaint two we see in verses 15 through 17. Now he says, I've done nothing wrong. He took God's word, ate God's word, which is a metaphor for saying that he he internalized God's word and then spoke God's word. He lived a holy life in an unholy time. And where did it get him? This is really what what Jeremiah is saying. Where did it get him? All of this holiness? All of this hard work? All of his faithfulness? Where did it get him? Nowhere. That's complaint two. It gets worse. His third complaint, verse 18. Let me read it. Jeremiah says, 
to God. Why is my pain unceasing, my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Will you be to me like a deceitful brook, like waters that fail? Complaint three. God, you've deceived me. God's let him down. God didn't reward his faithfulness. We could put all these three complaints together, package them up, tie a bow around it in one simple phrase, the sort of emotional thrust of what Jeremiah is accusing God of, which is, Jeremiah deserves better. He was faithful, he did the right thing, spoke the right message, lived a very hard life, and he deserves better. I'm not sure if you talk like God, like that. My guess is that many in this room have too much evangelical politeness and we get really uncomfortable and you're like, Jeremiah, that message doesn't cross the line, but your message is about to cross the line. At minimum, it looks like Jeremiah is drifting into some level of self-pity. He's accusing God in some like Job-like manner and basically saying, Why are the wicked prospering and the righteous not? And if you have not asked that question, that is one of the most prevalent questions in your Bible that God's people ask over and over and over again. And I wonder if you're asking it this morning. Because I'm preaching it to a church that wants to hear the whole counsel of God. The whole truth, the full truth, and nothing but the truth. I'm speaking to a, a, a church that wants to hear books of the Bible preached. That, that want to cross the line when God's word tells us to cross the line, even if we know that this is going to be a message that is not going to be received well. I know I'm preaching to a church that says, we want to grow the church by God's word through the power of the Spirit and not by, like, smoke machines. Like, I know that that's the church we are. And yet, have you ever wondered why it looks like, experientially, that the greatest threat to our fruitfulness is our faithfulness? Have you ever had that thought? You just look around the world and say, we could get so much more claimed if we just cut that text out of the Bible. We could grow our church if we just didn't, have to talk about this issue related to gender. I mean, one of the greatest preachers to ever live in America 200 years ago got fired because he wanted to have communion and give communion only to Christians, and their church responded with, ah, it's not going to grow our church. That seems like a bad idea. We should just give it to anyone so that we can bring as many people into the church. And he was fired. You, you stand and say, we, this is clearly sin and unrepentant sin, and yet a man or woman could just go to another church and they'll accept them. I mean, just look around. You can grow a church with just one sermon, why the vaccine is the mark of the beast. I mean, that'll, that'll preach. 
how to have a better relationship with their anxious dog. That'll preach too. We want to see God's word, build God's word by God's spirit, but sometimes, experientially, it looks like faithfulness to God's word shrinks the church. That's Jeremiah. We instantly get uncomfortable with Jeremiah's complaint, but if we were honest with our lives, we've thought those same thoughts before. Why is it that the faithful seem to be on the wrong side of history? No wonder he doesn't want to cross the line. He doesn't want to preach this message. It just seems like it's going to speed up the inevitable. And the real shocker in light of this, I think, is movement three. Verses 19 through 21. God has the first word, and let me just tell you, church, God's always got the last word. Verse 19 through 21. Let me read it. Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, I will restore you, and you shall stand before me. If you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, you shall be as my mouth. They shall turn to you, but you shall not turn to them. And I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail over you. For I am with you to save you and to deliver you, declares the Lord. I will deliver you out of the hand of the wicked and redeem you from the grasp of the ruthless. Movement three. Movement one. The message that crosses the line. Message two, our tendency in light of that not to want to cross the line. And movement three, God's call to cross it anyways. In verse 19, God calls Jeremiah to do one thing with one word. If you're looking at your Bible, I think you could point it out. Return. Now, The question is, return from what? That word return comes up lots of times in the book of Jeremiah. And God puts that word in Jeremiah's mouth to tell the people of God to return back to their God. And so you're wondering, like, well, is Jeremiah, like, fallen prey to the people's idolatry and sin? Is that what's going on? Is God saying, return because of your sin? I don't think that's what's going on here. If you keep reading, after verse 19, God tells Jeremiah to return. And it's interesting because the language of verses 19, 20, and 21 are almost verbatim to the language in chapter 1. Jeremiah chapter 1 is God's commissioning of Jeremiah into the preaching ministry. God says, you're going to be my prophet. You're going to, I'm going to tell you what to say, and you're going to just say it. And he commissions him to this great prophetic work. And in chapter 15, the language is still the same. God is basically saying, I need you to return to the commission I already gave you in chapter 15. Some of you want a fresh word. Jeremiah got an old word. Return to your calling. Which you might go, huh, why does Jeremiah need a reminder to return to his calling. And all you have to do is read chapter 14 to find the answer to that. So I said earlier that at the end of chapter 14, Jeremiah prays this amazing pastoral 
prayer for the people in light of their sin. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. It's emotional. But there's one problem. The problem is Jeremiah chapter 14, verse 11. You can go there. You can see. God says, do not pray for the well-being of those people. And Jeremiah prays anyway. Now, I, I don't think Jeremiah is in like obstinate sin for this great prayer. But at minimum, Jeremiah has drifted. He didn't stay on the line. And so God, in light of that, calls him subtly, sternly, clearly, decisively to return back to the very calling that he had. And when Jeremiah does that and returns to his calling and his commission, God promises, I will do everything I've already promised to do. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to fulfill my promises through you when you return to the nature of your calling, the nature of your commission. Just preach the message that I give you and the promises that I've already given you will come. Will come to flourishing. Jeremiah, I think, is all of us. All of us from time to time drift. Jeremiah's drift was seemingly from God's calling and God's mission. And I think that's often how we drift too. I think that's how churches drift. We forget the mission and we forget the calling and we forget the message. Elders can do this. Elders can drift from their calling to shepherd and equip and train up and raise up and equip the saints for works of ministry. Elders can drift. Members can drift away from their role in exercising their spiritual gifts to make disciples. Even missionaries can drift from living a holy life in a foreign land. We can drift. And there's lots of reminders of this. Jeremiah was set aside for a particular role with a particular message on a particular mission, and he was drifting. And we too have a particular message and a particular mission. And if you want to know what that mission is and that message is, well, the clearest way we can see this is when God sent his own son to deliver that message and to deliver that mission. Jesus came as a preacher. He came heralding the good news. And as he talked about this gospel in which he would die to forgive and rescue and ransom a people for himself, he said, I'm going to take the people who put their faith in that message and I'm going to send them on a mission to preach that good news. Jesus said, I have a mission and I have a message. Peter was one of those people who heard the message and was called to live out the mission. Jesus, on the night before he died, Peter, and I don't think it's because he accidentally had some melatonin, he fell asleep on the mission. 
and on Jesus. Did he not? And then Jesus dies and he raises from the grave, but he doesn't exactly know what's going on. But what we do know is that Peter goes back to fishing. He was called to make to fish for men, and now he's fishing for bass. Peter had drifted, had he not? And so we read it earlier, Jesus comes to Peter and says, I gave you a message, and I gave you a mission. And in John 21, the calling is simply for Peter to return. Peter had a recommissioning ceremony, just like Jeremiah did. And he says, go feed my sheep. And as extraordinary as that is, Jesus then tells him, and Peter, you're going to suffer for this message, and you're going to suffer for this mission. And Peter goes, okay, but what about them? What about these disciples? His fairness meter is like provoked, and he's wondering, uh, what about them? If I'm going to get canceled for crossing the line, what about John? And Jesus says, you don't need to worry about that. I've given you a message. I've given you a mission, Peter. When I tell you to cross the line, you cross that line. I've given you the message. Be faithful to that message. God says he's going he's gonna to worry about the ends. Peter's job is just to preach. And, those, and that message is going to be the, the means in which God's going to accomplish his ends. Brothers and sisters, the storm of life will always swirl around us and in various ways seduce us to drift, to get off course from the message and the mission, to make us drift. We need to fundamentally, fully, and continually return as Jeremiah taught us, as Peter exhibited, to return to the message of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection and for the hope that that gospel is for the world and together as a church live out the mission. We have also been commissioned to make disciples by heralding that message. Jeremiah it was a long time ago in a different historic context. Jeremiah had a message and a mission, and God gave him a promise. God promised him at least five things in chapter 15. Protection, God's presence, restitution, vindication, salvation. And can I just tell you, in Jesus Christ, God has promised those things to us as well. Protection, his presence, restitution, vindication, salvation. Those are no less true for us than they were for Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah had an uphill climb when this happened. The end of Jeremiah, if you know the end of the story, Jeremiah finds himself at the end of the book in Egypt. He had a hard life. Peter had a hard life. And if you're a Christian, I hate to break it to you, you're going to have a hard life too and an uphill battle. But the promises of God in Christ Jesus are no less for us than they were for Peter, than they are for 
Jeremiah. God will protect us. God will provide for us. God will rescue us. God's presence will be amongst us as we preach the gospel, return to that message, and return to our calling. Matthew 28, to make disciples of all nations. Jeremiah needed the reminder of that. I wonder if you need that reminder as well. Return to the message, the man, the mission, and in so doing, enjoy the promises that come with it. Let's pray. God, we, uh, we, we thank you for your mercy and your love, and we pray in various ways in which we have drifted. We pray that you would strengthen our resolve to return to you. That's going to look different for many of us, but we pray, Lord, that you would expose that in all of our lives. We pray for a church that in ways in which we've maybe drifted from what you've called us to do at this point in time in Puyallup, we pray that we would return to the calling to preach the good news of Jesus Christ and to live on mission for the sake of our community, for the sake of the nations, and for the sake of your glory and our joy. We pray that we would repent and return to you in those ways. And we pray, Lord, that we would experience more of your favor as we do that. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.